Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing? If you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royful Brown, who is 37.8 uh, degrees north and 122.3 degrees west, which puts me in Oakland, California. And with me, I have Claire Asprey. Now, Claire, every month I say, where are you? And you say... I'm at 52.1 degrees north and 0.5 degrees east. And I'm in Bedfordshire as always. Map Corner is a podcast dedicated to the to the love of maps and to all things cartophilic. So if Peter's is your projection, if it's your thing, you're in the right place. This month we're talking to uh, Ted Kay from the North American Vexillological, Vexillological Association. Gosh, it's not an easy more. thing to say, is it? It's <laughs> not an easy thing to say. No, and frequent visitors to this podcast and certainly frequent visitors to the Zoom calls of it will know that uh, Royfield is a very big fan of flags. So prepare yourself for uh, plenty of flag chat today from uh, Royfield and Ted. And if I'm lucky, I'll get a word in. I know we're on Zoom right now, but fundamentally there's going to be about 3,000 people listening to this podcast. Isn't it wonderful? We can be on a podcast talking about flags and more opportune bit of media has never been invented for such a visual thing uh, but apart from the the the, fl- the flag chat i've put my teeth in uh, we have an audio postcard from anton thomas in melbourne australia now we do have a few new faces on our zoom call and i say to you new faces welcome but please review us on apple itunes because the more people that review us on Apple iTunes, the more new listeners we actually get. It's great they've got loads of new listeners, but if you do enjoy uh, Map Corner, and if you don't, why are you here right now? Go on to Apple iTunes, go and write us a five-star review. 
Lovely. And of course, yeah, we are live on Zoom today with some of our regular listeners. And so if you with us today and doing welcome and you're welcome we'll be joining in and asking questions later uh, but if you want to join the zoom calls uh, make sure to join our facebook group uh, from that corner where we post the links uh, to get the details for the next show which is always recorded on the first saturday of the month exactly we record on the first saturday of every month at 6 p.m uk time which is 1 p.m eastern and 10 a.m pacific Ted, I love a flag, but I'm not going to sit here and say that it's the type of thing which excites some a prospective date when I'm sat in front of them sipping on a, a nice glass of Pinot. I don't normally lead in with, I love a flag, do you love a flag? Why do you love flags so much, sir? Well, I'm happy to be joining you from 49 degrees, 32 minutes north, 122 degrees 43 minutes west, so that's Portland, Oregon. And why do I like flags? It's actually the confluence of flags and maps and travel and geography that got me interested in flags. I started collecting flags 35, 40 years ago when I was living in South America. And I started gathering the flags of places I traveled to as tourist mementos. And over time, each place I would travel, I would get the flag. I, I started collecting very small flags, but eventually they are large flags, three feet or a meter at the hoist. So full-size flags. And I have two rules for my collection. The first is I have to have been to the place to own the flag. That spares all my friends from feeling the obligation of trying to find a flag for me when they travel. And the second rule is the flag has to come from that place. I can't go to Norway and then come back to Portland and go down to my local flag store and buy a Norwegian flag. The flag that I own to represent my travel to Norway needs to be a flag from Norway, acquired in Norway. It might be made in China, but if it's the flag that Norwegians use to represent themselves, then that's an appropriate flag for my flag collection. And I now have enough flags at the national, state, provincial, city, event, historical, institution level to fly a different flag every day. And that's what I've been doing in these COVID times. I fly a new flag every day for the benefit of my neighbors. I wish I had a flagpole. Uh, so I'll, I'll do exactly the same thing, sir. Now, flags. For the uninitiated, obviously everybody knows what a flag is. But I think most people don't realize how important flags are. And I would say flags are more important than life and death, right? You're going to back me up with this assertion, aren't you, sir? So tell us why flags are so important and why people the world over, the history over, have died for flags. Well, there's sort of two, two questions there. Why are flags important? And then the dying for flags. Why are flags important? Fundamentally, Humans are tribal animals, and we want to belong to some tribe. And flags are the ultimate symbol to represent the tribe that we belong to. And we may belong to multiple tribes at the national, state, or provincial, city, school, military, sports. There's all kinds of affiliations we have, but we've developed the flag as the ultimate symbol of tribal affiliation. The flag itself isn't important. 
so much as it's the symbol of our relationship to our our group. So that's, I think, why flags are important. Going back in the history of flags, we can understand the idea of dying for the flag. The very first flags were developed in Asia, in China, and their first use was to mark the position of people on the battlefield. Imagine sending men into battle. You need to know where your folks are and where the other folks are. And if you're the general on the hill, you want to be able to say, send those guys over there. These people are falling back. You really need to see where your units are on the battlefield. And flags were a very effective way of marking both your side's units and the units of the other side. Eventually, flags came to the West through the Middle East, and they became important battlefield markers in the West. Realize, now this is before radios and any other kind of communication, so it's the major communication method on a battlefield, both showing where people are and, and, and sending signals and such. The idea on the battlefield was it's very important to have that flag marking your folks. And if that flag goes down, the rest of your army doesn't know where that unit is. And if your flag goes down, you're sort of invisible. Military culture developed a way of honoring the person to carry the flag. Because you imagine, if you're the one carrying the flag, there's a couple big challenges. One, you're a target. Everybody on the other side wants to shoot you with an arrow or a crossbow or a gun later on. You are a big target. You're marking yourself as a target. And the second thing is, you're carrying a flag. You can't even shoot back. You don't have a weapon. So the person who carried the flag was the most vulnerable guy out there on the battlefield. How do you convince people to do that? Well, you create a culture of honoring the flag, of honoring the flag bearer. The 19th century was really the last time there was big flag use on the battlefield. In the American Civil War, there's uh, stories of charges across the field where one flag bearer would be shot down and another guy would pick it up and carry it. He'd be killed. Next guy would carry it. Six people dying in the course of a charge carrying the flag across the battlefield. In order to get people to do that, you need to create all kinds of propaganda and belief that the flag is worth dying for. So I hope I've answered your question with sort of two, two things. One is the idea that the flag is the marker of our relationship to the groups we belong to. And the second is there's a battlefield requirement to get people to want to die for the flag because it had such an important uh, role in managing armies on the battlefield. Wow. And it sounds really flippant now, but when you started talking about the understanding where people were on the battlefield, the image that immediately came to my head were tour guides with umbrellas going through big cities, which is <laughs> sort of the same thing, but by no means anywhere near as um, politically or militarily important. What really excites me about flags is the DNA of the story of, of, of the flag, of the symbolic story. The majority of people watching us on Zoom are, if not British, or at least of British uh, descent. So, so if we look at the flag of the United Kingdom, it tells a very specific story of the union of, of the island. You've got the cross of St. George, uh, St. Andrew, and then of St. Patrick. And it's just wonderful. It just, it tells you about, about the island. All right, I'm just a fanboy. 
Give us some other examples of great flags which tell us the story of the countries which they represent, as opposed to, let's say, blue means liberty and red means revolution, you know. But in terms of putting together the physical symbols to show you the story, the history of a people. Let's start with the Union Jack. And that's the union not just of an island, but two islands. It's the island of Great Britain and Ireland. And that flag changed. It was first the flag of England plus Scotland in the early 1600s. And then in the early 1800s, it added Ireland. So the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is the official name and the flag, the Union Jack, representing the union of those three countries. Now, Wales, of course, being a principality of England, doesn't count as one of the three because it's re represented by England. Even though there's parliamentary issues and, and such nowadays, the flag represents those three areas. The first two to join, England and Scotland, combined, as you said correctly, the Cross of St. George for England and the Cross of St. Andrew for Scotland. But when it was time to add Ireland, Ireland didn't have a saint's cross. Crosses are for saints who were martyred, and St. Patrick was not martyred, so St. Patrick doesn't have a cross. So they picked a flag, a coat of arms, a prominent family in Ireland that had a red saltire on white, and sort of named that the Cross of St. Patrick and used that to represent Ireland on the Union Jack. The challenge, of course, when you look at a Union Jack, and I really should be showing you a diagram, the white cross on blue of Scotland and the red cross on white of Ireland are right on top of each other. How do you get them to share the space? So actually the red bars of that, of those salt tires, those X's, are split in half and there's red on in one part and white on the other. And if you look at a Union Jack and you're careful about it, you can see that the red and the white alternate in each of the bars but in a specific way that provides precedence to Scotland. Scotland was there first, so it's on top. So if you look at the upper left-hand corner of the Union Jack, and you look at the angle that's got the white and the red, you'll see that the red is below the white. The white is above the red. And then each of them has an extra white border, white bordered by white, those blend together, and then the red bordered by red. So there's a lot of heraldic and specific country history stuff put into the Union Jack. Now, of course, the idea of what would happen if Scotland leaves the Union, what would happen to the flag, here's my take, the flag doesn't change. The flag's a historical artifact. It's got too much brand identity for the country. It's going to keep that no matter what happens. There's lots of precedent for that. You asked about some other countries. Japan, great example land of the rising sun, a red disc on a white background, one of the most simple and effective and recognizable flags. And once people learn the symbolism of that flag, they won't forget that that's Japan. Of course, there's the naval ensign, which is famous with the rays coming out of that red circle, a very interesting and successful variant of the simple national flag. National flag uh, became official, uh, I think, in the Meiji era in the uh, middle 1800s, although there were images of it used before. Another country, let's talk about France. Some people say that the, 
the three colors of France's flag are liberté, égalité, fraternité, but in fact, they actually represent the colors of Paris, blue and red, and the color of the monarchy, white. And when that flag was adopted, there was still hope for everybody to get along within France. This was in the middle of the revolution. But the important thing that France did when it adopted that vertical tri-bar is that it turned the typical flag design of horizontal tri-bar onto its side. It upended the traditional flag design in the same way that the French Revolution was upending everything about society in France. Uh, at the time, nearly all national flags in Europe, actually there were no national flags. They were kingdom flags. They were flags of a ruling house that controlled a kingdom, which we now call a country. But arguably the United States flag was the first national flag as opposed to the flag of a kingdom. Most of those were horizontal. There were exceptions, the, the Nordic crosses, for example, but France turned everything on its side by creating the first vertical tri-bar. And now we see lots of flags around the world that are vertical tri-bars that are either direct descendants of the French flag, in other words, former colonies of France or places where France has had influence, or places that have wanted to represent that same revolutionary spirit of upending tradition. One of the instances of that, which I always love, is telling people that the flag of Italy was designed by Napoleon Bonaparte. And it's exactly a copy of the French flag, isn't it? He's a French revolutionary key mover, and he becomes the king of Italy, and he creates this new kingdom. And he says, blooming hell, I need to make up a flag here. I'll tell you what, uh, we'll copy the French, but instead of blue, put a little bit of green. Job done. What really then you kind of understand where, if you're a little bit of a gastronome, is the soft power that comes with the power of a flag. How many Italian restaurants have we been to all throughout the world? And that trickler is there. Sometimes it's outside the restaurant. It might be on the menu. That's like a real kind of great example of actually how pervasive this kind of graphic identity of a country can actually be, but actually how arbitrary it can actually start. Because there's nothing inherently Italian about at least when Napoleon Bonaparte said, right, we need to create a banner for this new country I'm going to create, there was nothing particularly Italian about red, white and green. But now it absolutely is. It's synonymous. You even have red, white and green pasta. Uh, your, your point about these things being arbitrary, the national color of Italy is blue. Blue, yeah. Blue is the color of the House of Savoy of the, the Kingdom of Italy, and that's the sporting color for Italy. You, you see sports teams from Italy, there aren't, they aren't red, white, and green, they're blue. And the same thing with the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch flag is red, white, blue, but the national color and the name of the ruling family is orange, the House of Orange. Uh, actually, the Dutch flag started out orange, white, blue, but that orange was not a very strong color and it would fade too much. And so they turned it to red. Um, and the Dutch flag influenced flags all over the place. When, when Peter the Great came to the Netherlands to study how to help westernize his country and westernize his navy, create a navy and such, he, he went to 
to the Netherlands to study shipbuilding, one of the things he picked up was, oh, we need a flag. And so the Russian flag uh, actually uh, with its stripes of the same colors as the Netherlands, but switched in order, is a direct descendant of the Dutch flag. You are the author of a book about flags. So I don't know if you wanted to share with us your thoughts on what makes a good flag and a bad flag. Thank you, Claire. This is the book that I compiled uh, almost 20 years ago now. It's called Good Flag, Bad Flag. And it's a 16-page brochure that helps explain to anybody designing a flag what the basic principles of flag design are. They're to help people who want to design a flag create a great design. And I don't take credit for the content of this. 20 different people whose writings I studied are the wisdom behind this book. And the basic principles of flag design, I'm told by people who are in the design world, are really basic principles of design. So nothing special here. And the principles are, very briefly, simplicity, meaningful symbolism, few colors, no lettering or seals, and distinctiveness. Now, interestingly, the fourth one, no lettering or seals, is a negative principle. And that's important because this book was written for North American audiences. And North America is replete with poorly designed flags that have writing on them and seals. And so it's important to actually put a stake through the heart of that one with a negative principle. So, so Ted, let, let, let me jump in, sir. Let me just jump sure. in. Sure. Because this, this is such a vexatious point as far as, far as I'm concerned. Vexatious point about technology. Right. So, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Are you North Americans? And I'm, I'm actually going to say you Americans. I'm going to lead the Canadians out of it because they managed in the mid-1960s to pull off a neat trick with their flag to make it new but old and it's so embraced uh, not only nationally but internationally as the symbol of Canada. What they've done there, wonderful, right? And I suppose there's because um, the British colonial history in Canada is so much longer than it is um, in the United States in terms of the the, the bond with with the United Kingdom that their uh, provincial flags still have lots of British heraldic symbols and whatever. And okay, some of the flags are a little bit kind of slightly kooky, but yeah, you know they, they look okay. You Americans can't design flags at all, can you? You have to say that Americans per se on a city and a statewide level need to hang their collective heads in shame when it comes to what they hang outside of their state legislators, city halls, etc. There you go. Um, completely received and I agree in general. We have... Not in whole parts, sir? Uh, we have in the United States many great state flag designs. We have one we have or two. One or two. New Mexico. That's Arizona, a good one. That... Alaska, Texas, South Carolina. Okay, we have five. We have some five great out of fifty. That's not a good strike rate. Oh, I, I, I'm I'm not going to argue the the numbers. <laughs> the general flag design in the United States for a state is what we call an SOB flag. That's a seal on a bedsheet. <laughs> and something like 30 out of 50 states have a seal or a coat of arms on a solid background. 
In fact, 24 of them have a seal or a shield on a blue background. 24 US state flags are indistinguishable from each other at a distance because of the violation of that principle of no lettering or seals. Several of those poorly designed flags with the seal on them, they've solved it by writing the name of their state on the flag. You, you can't understand our seal, so we're Kansas or we're Montana. Now, one of the reasons not to write on a flag is that a flag is a graphic symbol, not a verbal symbol. You know, why don't we just write France on the flag? I mean, we laugh when you think of, of putting a country's name on a flag. Why don't we laugh when U.S. states write the name of their oh, state? We do. The, the rest of the world does. <laughs> right. Right. Well, why don't Americans laugh? I mean, this is the, my pitch to them. Uh, and uh, another reason not to write on your flag is that letters are hard to sew. If you sew them all the way through, they're backwards on the other side of the flag. If you want it to read correctly on both sides, you need a triple thickness flat fabric. It makes it heavy. It makes it expensive. It doesn't fly well. So all kinds of reasons. If you just print the flag, Kansas on the back, it says Saznak. And it, they've written that because their symbols have failed. Well, the solution to failed symbols isn't explaining what the symbols were supposed to be if you could read them. It's having better symbols. So American state flags generally have poor designs. There are some great ones, but I'd say there's probably 15 great ones and 35 poor ones. Our group, the North American Vexillological Association, last time you need to say the whole thing, NAVA, nava.org. If you go on our website, you can click through and find our surveys of U.S. and Canadian state and provincial and territorial flags that gives people's ratings, average ratings of all of them when we've done a survey, and then ranks them in, in order of those, those ratings. The one of your basic questions is, why does this come about? And if we also look at city flag design in the United States, there's a similar issue of putting a seal on a solid background and, and saying that's, the, that, that's good. There, there's a couple themes that explain this. Uh, I would say the first one is the American or rejection of aristocracy when it left British rule. There was this, we are rejecting Europe, we are rejecting these aristocratic trappings. And so we will no longer have heraldry. The uh, United States has no tradition of heraldry. People don't get coats of arms in the United States unless in the true fashion that people do in other countries. Therefore, we also don't have a heraldic authority that will rule on things. In Canada, there's a Canadian heraldic authority and a city uh, or even a province, if it wants the help of the heraldic authority, it can go, hey, can you help us create a flag? There is no such institution in the United States. Furthermore, not we've not just rejected heraldry and aristocracy. Ted, can I just say there's a very control. obvious gap in the market, and surely that's where your organization can just <laughs> slide right in there. We are uh, behind the scenes. We're involved in a lot of a lot of things going on. The, the next part of the explanation is this rejection of central authority. In Croatia, for example, when a city wants to adopt a flag, it has to apply with that design to the central authority in the national structure 
to say, is it okay for us to adopt this flag? And some commission or, or group approves it. Same thing in Macedonia, for example, that the flag is part of the whole structure of uh, governance that says the cities are below, the regions are below the country, and there's this authority that, that flows down. In the United States, we have this tremendous democratic idea that a state can do whatever it wants in certain areas. In fact, our constitution reserves to the states all powers that aren't specifically given to the National Congress. So anything that's not in the constitution that says it is national is by definition local. It's state or even even at the city level. So we have this tradition of, of independence. So the, the states will say, oh, we, we don't have to ask anybody else for what our state flag is going to be. Hence the great drama that played out just this year in the state of Mississippi, where it had a flag with an offensive symbol on it, the Confederate battle flag, that had put, been put there in the Jim Crow era of the 1890s, that had survived all the way up until the Black Lives Matter movement. And that was the tipping point that put public opinion against that flag. And eventually Mississippi took down its flag, was without a flag for four months, and this Tuesday, with the election, the other big thing in Mississippi that was, was decided was the proposed new flag was adopted by over 70% of the vote. But my point there is that Mississippi chose, not anybody else. So the, the designs of state flags and city flags are locally determined. The, Please tell me they didn't pick a, a seal on a blue background. No, actually, it's a, uh, if I describe their flag, and I really should be showing you pictures, but if I describe the flag, imagine a Canadian pale, red uh, bars on either side, and a central panel of blue, and border of gold between the blue and the red, red bars, and in the middle of the blue is a great big magnolia blossom. Mississippi is the magnolia state. And then surrounding the blossom are 20 white stars, 19 white stars and one gold star. The gold star is representing the tribes. And then, because it was required by the legislature, the words, in God we trust. That sounded um, so great until you just put the words back on it. Well, not yes, you personally, course, not you personally, of course. Uh, yeah, Ted, of course. I, I, Ted, sorry, I need to jump in because you know what? I could do flag talk all day, but this podcast is called Map Corner, and we do have an audio postcard. So I'm just going to quickly Great. interrupt you for four minutes whilst uh, we go from from North America and from flags to the wonderful world of Melbourne, Australia. And he, this is our audio postcard from Anton Thomas. Hello, Map Corner. Hello, Claire, Royfield. Uh, it was lovely to chat to you the other month. And I'm checking in with you from the great city of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And we are just emerging from a very long lockdown. Since about early July, we've been under lockdown and finally things are easing. It's certainly touch and go and we're hoping that it goes well from here. Of course, uh, it's touch and go for all of us, as you'll know all too well in the UK. It's springtime, people are out and about. It's a sight for sore eyes. People are drinking beer and, you know, avoiding snakes and, and all the usual things you do in springtime in Australia, and it's just wonderful. So, a little about Melbourne and Victoria. Well, 
we are the smallest of the mainland Australian states, but by small, it's still 227,000 kilometres squared, which is larger than the island of Great Britain by a little bit, and with a population of about 6.3 million people, uh, 5 million of those being in Melbourne. So imagine 6.3 million people over the land area of Great Britain, and that's Australia. It's a state with a great amount of geographic variety. We've got mountains and real alpine regions off in the east. Uh, we've got really the, the outback uh, in the northwest. We have beautiful beaches, a large coastline, wonderful rural areas, and of course, a really great city. And Melbourne, while it doesn't have the immediate natural beauty of Sydney, Sydney, of course, has that famous harbour and it is spectacular. Melbourne is more known as the kind of cultural and sporting and entertainment capital of Australia. And, of course, these are the kind of things that get hit really hard in the pandemic, so it's, it's been a rough year for Melbourne. But this is a great city and it has about the same population as Sydney, so we're kind of equal first in Australia. <laughs> but the state of Victoria is abundant with natural beauty. You just have to kind of drive quite far to to get out of the city. We're a big sprawling city like all the Australian centres. The highest point is Mount Bogong at 1,986 metres above sea level, which is frustratingly close to 2,000 metres. There aren't many 2,000 plus metres in Australia. Uh, as you might know, we're a relatively low continent. However, that isn't a measure of how beautiful a place can be or how beautiful a mountain range can be. I, mean, I grew up in the South Island of New Zealand, which has higher mountains than the entire Australian continent. However, when I first moved here, I was blown away to go out to some places and, and see just how spectacular mountains could be that weren't formed by tectonic forces, but rather by wind and sun and water over periods of many thousands of years. One good example of this is in the west of the state. Uh, there's a mountain range called the Grampians, or well, the Aboriginal name is Garraword, an extremely stunning series of these sawtooth ridges filled with caves and sweeping vistas and uh, lots of bush and animals. And when I first went out there, I was just blown away. So we're very lucky in Victoria. We're also at the confluence of many different climates. <laughs> I mean, to the north and the west is the outback, uh, to the south is the Bass Strait, Tasmania and of course the great southern ocean the south pacific so we get really changeable weather notoriously so Aussies like to make fun of us for it <laughs> four seasons in a day uh, but I actually quite like that because I think variety is very important in life it's a wonderful place to be the the other thing I would have to mention about Australia of course is our animals are just amazing now there are the very very dangerous deadly ones I mean there are snakes in my local park which are in the top five most deadly in the world <laughs> that's just life here but at the same time we've got wombats and koalas and kangaroos and wallabies and all kinds of amazing bird life and they're really really prevalent uh, for example on the great ocean road which is a famous highway uh, to the southwest out of melbourne uh, koalas are just abundant so it's the, these are not just things that you see in wildlife sanctuaries australia is a very wild continent it's one of the things that I, I love about living here is that sense of, of there still being such an untouched frontier, which obviously with 6.3 million people in the land area of Great Britain, you can imagine <laughs> how that's quite easy for that to play out. Anyway, hello again from the wonderful city of Melbourne and uh, I hope to speak to you again and that's a little sample from our lovely corner of the world. 
Question number one, which country has the world's oldest continuously used flag? Is it A, Scotland, B, Denmark, C, Japan? So which country has the world's oldest continuously used flag? A, Scotland, B, Denmark, C, Japan. That's question number one. Question number two, which country has changed its flag the most times? A, Haiti, B, Somalia, C, Afghanistan. Now, mm, I don't know about this, Claire. I know Claire actually put these together, right? Technically, there's another country, and you could say it's changed it uh, 50 minus 13, uh, 37 times, you could say. Just saying. Um, question number three. Which way does the dragon face on the Welsh flag? A, left, B, right, C, forward. Which way does the dragon face on the Welsh flag? A, left, B, right, C, forward. Question number four. How many European Union member flags have yellow in them? Um, A6, B7, C8. Ted, if you don't get all of these, shame on you, sir. You'd have to resign from the Vectological Association if you don't get all these. That's a vexing question. That's oh. a vexing question. <laughs> uh, question number five, and this doesn't really work on a podcast at all, but I'll try and do my best to describe these for people who are just listening as opposed to watching. Question number five, match the flags to these countries, Poland, Monaco, Singapore, and Indonesia. So if you know your flags, you'll know that these countries, the flags are extremely similar. It's fundamentally two horizontal bars of either white and red. And then one flag has a crescent moon and five stars. So um, which of these flags are matched to which of these countries? We've got Poland, Monaco, Singapore and Indonesia. Question number six, match these flags to the countries. Right. And um, one of the things that Claire and I talked about uh, very briefly yesterday was how flags have a, have a family. Um, there, there is definitely a link between uh, some of the countries on the first set of questions. And then there's definitely a link on these. Uh, these are countries that have an Islamic heritage because there's a crescent moon and a star. So you need to match the flags of the, these countries to their flags. We've got Libya, Azerbaijan, Algeria and the Comoros. Very brightly coloured flags, but with a distinct Islamic uh, crescent moon. And then question number seven, and that's our last question, match the flags of these countries. And um, one of them is a country of Japan. We've got Palau, Bangladesh and Laos. Ted has talked about the iconic nature of the flag of Japan. So if you're watching on Zoom, well, if you're watching this on Zoom and you don't know the flag of Japan, just log off now. So you really should know that. I think any functioning adult on planet Earth should actually know what the flag of Japan looks like. But there's also the flag of Bangladesh, Palau and Laos. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com 
slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the time for you if you have a question to, to Ted K, Mr. Flags, I believe he's called on the mean streets of, uh, of Portland, Oregon. Is that how people address you when you're walking along down there in, in Portland, Oregon? Please tell me that that's the case then. So Mr. Flags is coming. So if you've got a question for, for Ted, Andy Gladwin. Thanks, Rufford. Uh, hi there, Ted. Um, I was interested in uh, naval jacks and uh, quite often, they're different to the, the national flag. So I was just wondering what the the background to that was and the the history behind it. Uh, you you said naval jacks. Yes, is that the wrong term? Let me just clarify terminology. Uh, the flag that represents a nation on board a ship when the ship is underway, it's usually flown on the stern. It's called the ensign. So the national flag at sea is usually called the ensign. When a ship, usually a military ship, is in port, there's often action around the stern and a big flag is, is too big. And so they put a small flag on the bow, a small flag, a jack, like a jackknife is a small knife, a jack flag is a small flag. And so the flag at the bow is called the jack. And for some countries, there's a different design for the ensign, uh, the national flag, the ensign, and the jack. Some countries, they're all the same. Some countries, the ensign and the national flag are the same, and the jack is different. The jack, by the way, for United States naval vessels uh, in regular times is the what's called the union or the canton of the national flag. That's that blue panel with the 50 white stars on it. Just that rectangle is the jack that goes on the bow of a uh, U.S. naval ship in port. Uh, the ensign for the United States is the same as the national flag. So we fly, the national flag at sea and land is the same. In British tradition, 
there's a different flag for the ensign. Uh, there have been many changes over the years on how ensigns are used, but the British ensign is the Union Jack in the corner and then a solid field, uh, usually red, but sometimes blue, sometimes white with a St. George's cross on it. Interesting ensign story here. Uh, Royfield, you talked about the Italian flag of, of uh, green, white, and red. That's almost the same as the Mexican flag of green, white, and red with the Mexican symbol in the middle of it. For many years, the ensign of Mexico was the Mexican flag without a central symbol on it. In other words, the same as the Italian national flag. That was the ensign of Mexico. But the ensign of Italy at the same time was the Italian flag with the arms of the House of Savoy in the middle of it. So it was, it was a recipe for confusion there. They've since just sort of gone back to their national flags. Uh, just to summarize, some countries have six different flags for those uses, and some have some lower number, and some just have one. You obviously are steeped in all things vexillogical, flappological. Um, <laughs> let, let's be honest about it. Some of the newer countries on the world stage, which have been created in the last 50, 60 years, some of them have flags which are somewhat much of a muchness, shall we say. You can look at many African states and you go, hmm, type of thing, right? But surely the, the, the standout in terms of uh, flags of the world, in terms of the newer flags, is the island of Jamaica, which just so happens to be the, the island of my parents' birth. Was it last year there was an online uh, World Cup of flags and the island of Jamaica won that resoundingly? Now, you obviously are Mr. Flags. I just need your seal of approval, pun completely intended, that the flag of Jamaica is, of course, the world's best designed flag on the national level. Here's what I'll give you for Jamaica. Not only is it a great design, but it is the only national flag that does not have red, white, or blue on it. There was one other flag that changed recently, leaving Jamaica as the only flag like that. It's a very compelling flag in part because of that. Let me address your much of a muchness comment about uh, flags of new countries. And that is that in many cases, especially in Africa, the flag of a new country, usually it's a country that is thrown off the yoke of colonial rule, tends to be the flag of the group that threw off that yoke. In other words, the independence movement flag or the freedom liberation army flag. They say, we drove those guys out. This is our flag. So this must now be the flag of our country. Especially in Africa, we see many of the national flags being echoes or exact copies of the flags of the liberation movements that led to independence. Now, that leads to an interesting cultural difference between, say, Africa and South America. In Africa, the flag tends to be associated with the regime that's running the country. Although we all think, yes, that's the flag of my country. For the people in many African countries, well, that's the flag of the government uh, that's in power right now. And when a new group comes to power, Sometimes what happens is they say, well, we're in charge now. Let's throw out those guys' flag. Let's put in our flag. And so flag change 
sometimes happens in Africa because of regime change. By contrast, in South America, generally speaking, the flag is associated with the country. The countryness of countries in South America is on average 150 years older than the countryness of countries in Africa. But in South America, when there's an opposition group saying, vote those rascals out or, or kick those rascals out who are running the country, the opposition group will be waving the flag of the country. And they'll be saying, we are the legitimate heirs to this flag. You should be voted out. We should be in because we represent our country. And when the, the new group gets into power, the country's flag is, remains the country's flag because it's associated with the country, not with the ruling party. Uh, do you want to know a little story, Ted? Go ahead. Story of the Jamaican flag, right? So the, the Jamaican flag wasn't designed in Jamaica. It was designed in Panama, and it was designed by, uh, I think it was a Presbyterian minister who was of Scottish descent, hence the saltire. So a little bit of Scotland squeezed its way onto the Jamaican flag. And Absolutely. And in fact, um, the Cuban flag was designed in New York. The Puerto Rican flag was designed Im in New York, imitating the, the Cuban flag. Wait a these minute. Were, are you telling me that you knew the story of the Jamaican flag? Well, these are good stories. These are good stories. And I can't and, tell you anything about flags, can I? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, sure you, I'm sure you can. But let me tell you a Melbourne story. The video on Melbourne was inspiring. It reminded me, uh, I was in Melbourne a few years ago and had the great uh, opportunity to visit Carolyn Richardson, which is the largest flag manufacturer in Australia. And they were very kind. The, the owner walked me through the warehouse and said, you collect the flags of every place you've been to. Where have you been in Australia? Just pick it off the shelf and take it home with you. So they were very kind in giving me a, a large group of uh, Australian flags. But the story I want to tell is about the flag that flies over Parliament in Australia. The Parliament's on a hill. Parliament's sort of built into this hill. There's this big flagpole on top of the hill. And in Canberra, the, the flag is the size of a double-decker bus. It's seven, seven meters high. It's this huge flag. And the Australian flag just takes a beating in the, the wind and the, the rain and the UV light of the sun. And they have to change that every month because the fly end of the flag gets just beat up. So they have to take it down and they, they trade it out with a new one. And they take the old one back to Carol and Richardson in Melbourne. And Carol and Richardson mends it. They cut a meter off the fly and sew a new piece on the fly. But the problem is that if you sew new fabric onto this flag that's been out there in the UV light and the weather and fading that flag, the new piece is going to be nice dark blue and the faded flag's going to be a different color. You're going to see this, this uh, strip that, that, that doesn't match. So Carolyn Richardson has solved this in the back of their parking lot, they have a couple flagpoles, and on those flagpoles are flying seven meter by one meter pieces of blue fabric. So they are flying the replacement at the same time the flag is flying on Parliament Hill. And when that flag comes down, they marry up the pre-faded fabric with the uh, flag and put it back up. 
So that's my Melbourne story. That's a great story. That is utterly a great story. Why don't we do this, Claire? Why don't we uh, go on to social news and other bits and pieces, and then right at the end of the show, then we'll conclude with our quiz answers. Lovely. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just quick roundup of some of the social media stuff for the Map Corner group in the last month. Uh, we're now up to 277 Facebook group members. Uh, we've had a big influx today, actually. Um, and we've had some really interesting chats and posts in the Facebook group. Uh, some of my uh, favourite shout-outs from this month. One goes to Sheila Breen Kethley, who did a hand-drawn map to help uh, alleviate the boredom of a long road trip, which uh, I give a great kudos to that. Really liked to see the stuff that Ken McDonald posted about Maparium. Uh, in the Mary, Mary Baker Eddy Library in Boston, where you can sort of stand inside a large globe, um, although it's all at 1935 national boundaries, which, again, that's an interesting historical lesson in itself. If you think about how much has changed, even since kind of immediately in the post-war era, for example. Um, and another one I wanted to mention was uh, Brett Watkins shared a map which showed this massive Australian aquifer. And I think when we look at Australia, we, we think about the centre of Australia being, well, incredibly arid and dry, and yet actually mapping the aquifer that provides the water for quite a lot of the nation there shows how much of what's underneath there is water. Uh, and that's a whole different way of looking at Australia as a continent. So I, I really liked that. We did ask people on the group about their favourite maps ahead of having this conversation with Ted. And again, uh, congratulations to Lucy Mellon because she did some beautiful map biscuits uh, of all the European nations, which looked fantastic and very, very neat, to be fair, for maps. And I know we've talked a bit about state flags and uh, Rodney Smith put his vote in for the state flag of Maryland, which, if I'm honest, looks like A, too busy, B, crazy heraldry-type things, and C, really bad colour connections. Um, uh, and uh, too much dark, yeah, too much going on. Swirls, chevrons, it was all there. Uh, I cannot believe that that could be someone's favourite map. But, uh, Rodney, you're entitled to your opinion, and you're all welcome here. So, so that's my picks from the Facebook group. I just wanted to quickly put a bit mention on a couple of things that have been on the hashtag map corner on Twitter. One that you did recently, Royfield, which compares the kind of voting patterns in the US to very historical or physical geography uh, around what, what influences on um, kind of what where the fertile areas are and therefore where the agriculture was different and where slavery existed and therefore patterns of uh, population. And on a similar theme, one that I posted uh, earlier in the month, again, this is something I really want to do an interview on, but I haven't found someone to interview yet, but how the use of uh, hair braiding uh, among slave populations conveyed geographical information and uh, escape routes and things like that. Uh, and people were using uh, their hair braiding to demonstrate that. And uh, there's a huge interesting history that sits behind that that I would really like to know a lot more about. So that's some of the highlights from our social media stuff in the last month. Ooh, uh, thank you for that, Claire Asprey. So what we're going to do now, folks, we're going to go back and give you the answers uh, for the quiz. Question number one, which country has the world's 
oldest continuously used flag, Ted K, and the answer is... I believe it's Denmark. You believe correct, sir. You believe correct. Question number two. Which country's flag has changed the most times? Now, I actually really think the answer should be the United States of America. It's changed 30-odd different times every, each time a new state is added, and sometimes more states have been added, more than one state has been added at one time. But anyway, let's say that might be somewhat of a technical answer. Um, what do you think the answer that we have here is, Ted? Well, let me confirm your sense that the U.S. law is a flag uh, our flag gets a star added on the 4th of July after a state is admitted to the Union. At sometimes we've admitted as many four, as four states in a given year. So the number of states is not the number of times the flag has changed. I believe the flag has changed 27 times. And I believe that's the U.S. flag. And I believe Afghanistan's at something like 30. So either oh. way, I think Afghanistan is the winner of this. Claire, I take that all back. Whatever, it'd be pretty smug there. You know, you, you had a you you had a good uh, a good a good thing that needed to be checked there, right? Because it was pretty close. <laughs> uh, do you do you want to demand a recount? <laughs> yeah, is did I lose by less than a point of one percent? Because yeah, actually, were my poll watchers in the room? You know. So. <laughs> Well, well done, uh, Ted, and well done, Claire, because I actually thought you'd got that wrong. But uh, if Ted says so, I, I stand corrected. Uh, number three, which way does the dragon face on the Welsh flag? Ted K, the answer is? The heraldic rule is that your animal should face towards the hoist of the flag so that when you are marching, your animal goes with you instead of pointing the other way. Now, I admit, I don't remember if Wales follows that rule, but I'm going to go for left. It absolutely does follow that rule. Okay. But thank you for uh, ma making sense out of that. That's that that fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. It makes utter sense. How many European Union member flags have yellow in them? And I must admit, Claire, I didn't get this right. I kind of did, but I didn't because I now forget how many countries are actually in the European Union. You've got to, because there's like Serbia is but Croatia is and all this kind of stuff, Slovenia is, but blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, Ted, would you like to have a go at the answer? I, I have no idea, but I'll <gasps> guess eight. I'll guess eight. We will accept eight as an answer, Claire, because there are two acceptable answers here, aren't there, Claire? That's correct. And it depends on what colour you think Cyprus is on the Cyprus flag. Mm. Ah. Because it's not exactly orange in the way that the, um, the Irish flag has orange in it, but it's not yellow in the way that the Belgian flag has yellow in it. If you give me, you say that I'm right, then I'll tell you why I'm wrong. The Cyprus, <laughs> the Cyprus flag is one of those few great flags uh, at the national level that uses the outline or the silhouette of the country as opposed to any ethnic symbolism. And that's obviously on purpose. But Cyprus, the word comes from copper because of copper mines on Cyprus. And so the color of the country is supposed to be copper. So yeah. it's trying to be copper. But I think it gets represented as, as yellow. So I'll, I'll take what I can get there. Uh, I'm learning so much on this podcast this time. 
Me too. Well, I and and I'd love to say that the overlap between interest in maps and interest in flags is very very close. There's geography, political science, history, design, and those things permeate both interests in cartography and interests in vexillology. Ted, you've summed me up perfectly. I'm a history nerd. I love political science. I love design. I gotta love a flag. It all it all stands to reason. Um, but I did not know that about Cyprus. So I, I'm definitely at school today. Thank you, thank you, sir. Question number five: Match these countries: Poland, Monaco, Singapore, Indonesia. Ted K, over to you, sir. Start starting top left. I should stop while I'm ahead. The top left is Poland. That's a white bar over red. Uh, a white over red by bar. Uh, and the lower right is Singapore with the crescent moon and the five stars. Uh, I can tell you, um, the other two, Indonesia and Monaco, are only differenced here by the shade of the red. However, I believe that the official proportions of those two flags also vary. They're presented here in the same proportions, I believe. I can say with certainty that I can't tell which red is which for Indonesia and Monaco. You know uh, what, so the, I, I, you know what, sir, I don't think it really matters, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and in, in fact, in my book, Good Flag, Bad Flag, I mm -hmm. use that design of Indonesia's flag as a failure in distinctiveness. If you pick a mm -hmm. national flag that's the same as another nation, that's a challenge. We, we have a bigger one. Uh, right now, which is Romania and Chad. Short story about Romania and Chad. Romania picked its flag, which is uh, blue, yellow, red, vertical tri-bar in imitation of the French flag in the 1800s. That was Romania's flag. Under Soviet rule, Romania put Soviet symbolism in the middle of the flag. When Chad received its independence, uh, it looked around and said, we want to have a vertical tri-bar of uh, a uh, blue, yellow, and red. Does anybody have that? No, no. Romania's got something in the middle, so we'll pick. We'll pick it with just a, just plain bars. And then after the communist rule fell in Romania, they ripped the communist stuff off the middle of their flag and made it plain again. And that left Chad saying, "Hey, wait a minute. You left that parking space. That that's our flag now. No fair." And so right now, Romania and Chad have the same flag. They may differ a little bit in shades, but they look the same. There's, so. when those communist revolutions were happening in 89 and 90, there's an incredibly powerful symbol when specifically the Romanians, because of where it was placed, cut out, didn't they, the communist symbols. You had people flying the flag of Romania with a big hole in the middle. because they cut out, And the, that was so powerful. That started in 1956. In the Hungarians did... Hungarians did that first, and that was a, a symbol of resistance to communist rule, was to tear those symbols out and fly a flag with a hole in it. And I've, I've actually got a lapel pin that I got in Europe uh, in one of those countries that is an image of the flag, but it actually physically has a hole in the middle of it, uh, using negative, truly negative space mm. to impart the symbolism Absolutely. by what wasn't on the flag. 
And and then the other thing just to say about this before before we go on is that obviously Singapore used to be part of Indonesia, so you get this the the family of of flags that they're together. Right. Question number six: Match the countries Libya, Azerbaijan, Algeria, and the Comoros. Uh, go, Mister Mister Ted. Oh well, um, you're you're gonna you're gonna catch me. I think. Well, no, I think I've got it. Upper left is Libya. Now, Libya had a, a flag that was solid green under Gaddafi. I actually used it as an example of a flag that uh, was too simple. It's kind of hard to say that a flag could be too simple, but solid green is too simple. For him, it was uh, Islamic symbolism. But, you know, imagine presenting the green flag in grayscale. I mean, it, j- it just doesn't work. Uh, so this is the flag that succeeded Gaddafi. The... Um, uh, next flag down lower left is Algeria. The uh, one on the uh, upper right would be Azerbaijan. Again, this is the post-Soviet flag. And the lower uh, right is Comoros. Comoros used to have a flag that was just green with the, the crescent and the four stars. It's interesting in all of these cases that the stars are overlapping the crescent in a way that's impossible astronomically. And there's some argument that the crescent is not a crescent moon, but it's just a crescent. So this is another topic of the history of the crescent representing Islam. And then the very last question is, match the flags to to their countries. We've got Palau, Bangladesh, Japan, and Laos. Anybody who can't spot Japan has already left this Zoom session and hung their head in shame. So um, go for it, Ted. Well, I want to point out something very interesting about a couple of these flags. Uh, The flag of Palau in the upper left, the yellow on blue, and the flag of Bangladesh on the upper right, red on green. The disks are not centered. They're moved slightly towards the hoist. That's for two reasons. One, when the flag is flying and the flag is flapping, it tends to shorten the perception the perceived things that are on the on the flapping side because they're moving more. Uh, the other reason is when the flag wears, like the one I was telling you about in Canberra, uh, and you need to cut some off the end and hem it, uh, if the flag already has the central symbol moved to the left, it won't be perceptively moved out of its position by hemming the flag a little bit. So there's a practical, two practical considerations in having the central image uh, put slightly towards the hoist. And then, of course, the lower right is, is Laos. Fab. Right, everybody. Uh, now is the moment of truth. Right, I'm going on to uh, speak of you. Uh, hello, uh, Simone. Um, you, you've, you've, you've joined us, uh, sir, h- halfway through our broadcast. So hello to you. Hello, Sarah Spilsbury over there just outside of Birmingham. And hello, Fiona, Nick. And we've already spoke to you, Andy, so don't say hello to you again. Right. So um, who got all of those correct, Wave? Who only got one wrong? Wow. Simone, there you go. Basque, sir. Um, tell us about you. Tell us about yourself. Where are you, and how do you know so much about flags? I'm in Glasgow. Why do you know so much about flags? Probably because I'm from Italy originally, and every year in Italy there's a publishing house that's published lots of atlases and geogra- uh, geography-related publications. 
they published what they call the Atlas Calendar, which is tiny, very thick red book. Each country has pages and pages of data, like you know, exports, production, GDP, um, statistics. And at the end, you got maps. So every year, up-to-date maps of all the world. And at the very end, they got all the flags up-to-date for the year. So the so question I, is then, Simone, there you go. So my dad uh, used to buy that book every year, and I, I would just live through it every year. And uh, So which uh, question did you get incorrect, sir? I got incorrect the, the question about uh, the yellow color in the European Union, because I forgot Romania... And I think in Lithuania, but added Cyprus, so I got it wrong. Valiant effort. Uh, the good news for you is that you're not doing next month's uh, audio postcard, because that's what the winner gets, because Andy Gladwin sent one in, which is actually going to be next month's, but you're going to do, you're going to start 2021's Map Corner audio postcard. Are you pumped? Are you excited? Yes. Fantastic. Something. And it has to be said. Here's, here's another little thing I can share with you, Simone. Dove in Italia. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to do my terrible Italian. Sorry. No, you got, where, you got a great reference. No, 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 no. Where, where are you from in Italy, sir? From. Rome, Roma. You know what? Um, now, now, there's a place which has got a wonderful civic symbol. Gone through, what, 2,000 years worth of history, that, that civic symbol. I'm not saying that you need to pick Rome as your audio postcard. You can pick Rome or Glasgow. It's entirely up to you. But for winning the Map Corner quiz, you have to do an audio postcard and email it to us. It only needs to be about four minutes or so. All right. Are you up for that, sir? Up for that. Brilliant. Excellent. Excellente, as they say in Italy. Right. That's us just about done. Uh, Ted K, can we have you back on again? I'm thinking, let's just change the name of the podcast from Matt. Who needs Matt? Flag Corner. Flag Corner. What do you reckon, Ted? I'm happy to join you anytime. This has been fun, and there's lots of stories to tell and lots of information to share. And uh, as I said, there's a tremendous overlap between maps, interest, and flag interest. And I'm, I, I love to be at the intersection there. Claire, um, is it time for us to wrap up our maps? I'm just going to tell you my map fact of the month. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I nearly forgot that. And a reminder oh. of what we're doing next month. So uh, this month's map fact is something I kind of stumbled over while I was doing a bit of research for the quiz. And it's that uh, for national flags, it's a flag fact really, not a map fact, um, there are more national flags with weapons on them than there are with plants on them. There are some nice flags with plants on, you know, maple leaf in Canada, the tree for Lebanon, but there are quite a lot of flags also that have machetes, swords, AK-47. And again, I guess it's a National Liberation Movement thing that translates into a flag uh, and you you get weapons on flags. Ted, doesn't that almost bring this whole thing full circle? Because it was banners in war. So kind of apt that you have an AK-47 on on the flag, was it Mozambique? Indeed. Indeed. Flags and belonging tribes, militarism, battles, those all go together. And for a discussion in another day, imagine sporting flags and symbols. Those are the icons of artificial tribes that I support this sports team. 
but the feelings are just as strong about belonging and who is us and who's the other other folks and so sports being a replacement for military conflict have the same kinds of trappings of symbolism and so uh, i think you're onto something there i've just thought of something there are more flags in the world that have symbols of roman torture on than anything else it's the cross isn't it there you go folks uh claire i think it's definitely time for us to wrap up our maps and uh, say tatty bye isn't it and uh, don't forget that our next episode will be recording on the 5th of december and we're going to get joined by uh, gideon defoe who's an author who's written a, a hilarious book uh, which i really enjoyed called an atlas of extinct countries it's a real rip roaring read it's a lot of fun great christmas presents um and uh, join us on the 5th of december to talk to gideon and now it is time to fold up our maps Tatty bye. Bye bye everybody. Thank you, Ted. Well done, Simone. <laughs> <laughs>